Cult Lecture Number Four, The Jehovah's Witnesses, Part Two. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Part Two. In the last lecture we discussed the Jehovah's Witnesses. We stated that they were also referred to as the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and we discussed very briefly their history. Founded by Charles Taze Russell, who was succeeded by Joseph Franklin Rutherford, and then we discussed a couple more of their leaders. We're discussing at this point the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses. We spoke about the fact that they denied the deity of Christ, they denied the Trinity, they denied the personality of the Holy Spirit, and they denied the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now let's take a look at their view of salvation by grace and the atonement. Salvation by God's grace, God's unmerited favor, and the atonement. They deny these teachings. They deny salvation by grace, and they deny the atonement of Jesus Christ. Instead, they teach that Jesus' death removed the effects of Adam's sin on us. Jesus' death on the cross removed the effects of Adam's sin on us. So that if we accept him, if we accept him, we can be saved by living a righteous life until death. Jesus' death on the cross removed the effects of Adam's sin on us so that if we accept him, we can be saved by living a righteous life until death. And all the mumbo-jumbo, uh, it just seems that Jesus Christ just won the right for us to save ourselves by our works is what it amounts to. Now when you look at the scriptural teachings about the law, we see that man cannot save himself. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 20 to 23. Romans chapter 3. Verses 20 to 23. And that reads, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in this passage we see that no one can justify himself by obeying the law. Rather, through the law, we, we become conscious of our own sin. You see, the law reveals God's holiness and God's holy standards. But the law also reveals man's sinfulness and that man learns that we cannot keep God's holy standards by our own self-effort. And therefore, the, the law reveals our own sin. But righteousness of God, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, not by works of the law.
Look at Ephesians, the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And that reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. So if the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, if Jesus' death removed the effects of Adam's sin on us so that we, if we accept him, we can be saved by living a righteous life until death, then why does Paul say that we're saved by grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves, not, not by works? So the scriptures teach we can't save ourselves by our works. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus performed the work in such a way that we can now save ourselves by our works. This, of course, is unscriptural. 1 Peter 3.18 1 Peter 3.18 gives us some insight into Christ's death on the cross for our sins. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind once for all, the just for the unjust. So Jesus Christ died for our sins. He died in our place. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 15 to 21 and that reads and he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf therefore from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh even though we have known Christ according to the flesh yet we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is why John the Baptist states of Christ, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus Christ died as our substitute. He took our punishment for us so that if we trusted in him for salvation, we would be saved and we would be spared the judgment. We cannot save ourselves by the works of the law. So here the Jehovah's Witnesses by denying salvation by grace and by denying the effects of the atonement 
place themselves outside the realm of Christianity as they also do by denying the deity of Christ and the Trinity. Christ's return, Christ's return. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a very unique view of Christ's return. The Jehovah's Witnesses, now this is uh, an issue that there's some debate about. It's questionable whether it was in the 1870s that they predicted that Christ would invisibly return or 1914. Uh, the reference that I'm using from is from Josh McDowell's work. He states that the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, predicted that Christ would invisibly return in 1914 to Brooklyn, New York. So apparently, according to them, Christ invisibly returned in 1914 to Brooklyn, New York. Now, some say no, it was the battle on again that they predicted then that Christ was supposed to have invisibly returned in the 1800s and 1870s or something along those lines. Uh, the information I have access to at this point says that they taught that Christ invisibly returned in 1914 to Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I stand corrected if that is not uh, exactly true. But they did predict that Christ would invisibly return, and supposedly he has already invisibly returned uh, either in the 1800s or in 1914 to Brooklyn, New York. Now, Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce them. So Christ's return is not going to be invisible. Matthew 24, verses 23 to 31, states the same thing. He's not going to come in secret. His return to earth will be obvious. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 to 31. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise, and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, it will be obvious. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will gather, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And so Christ teaches that his second coming to the planet earth will be very obvious. It will be a visible event, it will be an obvious event with the sun being darkened, the moon not giving and gets light, the stars falling from the sky, the powers of the heavens shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And so Christ's return to earth will be obvious, even a trumpet blast. 
Zechariah 14, verses 3 to 5, and Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. These passages also speak to the fact that Christ's return to the planet Earth will be very, very obvious. The view of the human soul that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses hold to is also uh, a false view. They hold to what is called soul sleep. Soul sleep. This is a false view of the human soul. Soul sleep. What they basically teach is that after death, after death, a man ceases to exist until he is resurrected to be judged. This is called soul sleep. Let me state that again. After death, a man ceases to exist until he is resurrected to be judged. Soul sleep. In other words, your soul doesn't exist apart from your body. Now, that's rather strange for a group of people that also believe that Jesus only spiritually rose from the dead and not bodily. But their view about the human soul, they believe that after death, a man ceases to exist until he is resurrected to be judged. This is called soul sleep. Take a look at Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. And that reads, talking about when man dies and then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it so when a godly man dies a man who's trusting in the Lord for salvation dies his spirit goes to be with the Lord this is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 1 and verses 21 to 24 Philippians 1 21 to 24 and Paul states this for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain but if I am to live on in the flesh this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose but I am hard pressed from both directions <clears throat> having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake <clears throat> so Paul states that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain he's not sure whether God wants him to continue living or to, to physically die and he states though that he desires to depart he desires to die and be with Christ and so it's very clear that when a believer dies his soul does not sleep. He does not cease to exist until the resurrection. When a believer dies, his spirit goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. In fact, James 2.26, James 2.26 tells us that just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. But you have the spirit separating from the body. The Jehovah's Witness have them all tied together in such a way that when the body dies, the spirit ceases, is annihilated, it ceases to exist for that period of time. Look at Acts chapter 7 and verse 59. 
Acts chapter 7 and verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so Stephen knew that at the moment he would die, his spirit would, be, would go to be in the Lord's presence. This is much like what our Lord said in Luke 23 and verse 46. Luke 23 and verse 46, Jesus is on the cross and it states this, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so both Jesus and Stephen and Solomon and Paul, they all agreed that when you die, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, and that reads... We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So to be absent from the body when you die, when James says the, the body without the spirit is, is dead, when your body dies, when you die, physically die, become, your spirit becomes absent from the body and it becomes present with the Lord, at home with the Lord. So Paul says, prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And then finally, look at Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, it's a rather long passage, but I'd like us to read it all. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. The rich man and Lazarus. Jesus is speaking and he states this. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life you receive your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, 
But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. But the key that I want to focus on in this passage is that here Lazarus and the rich man both die and while their bodies are rotting in the tombs, while their bodies are rotting in the graves, their spirits, uh, the spirit of the godly poor Lazarus goes to be in paradise, goes to be in heaven, whereas the spirit of the sinful, godless, non-believing rich man goes to be in the place of torment, Hades. So whereas the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the human soul sleeps, soul sleep, the human soul sleeps after death, that a man ceases to exist. After death, a man ceases to exist until he is resurrected to be judged. This is called soul sleep. The scriptures teach that this is a false belief and that in between physical death and the resurrection, the spirit goes to be with the Lord if you're a believer and the spirit goes to a place of torment if you're a non-believer. Now remember that Russell left Orthodox Christianity because he could not believe that God would punish people eternally, would put them through eternal torment. Well, this is one of the basic tenets or one of the basic beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses and that is the denial of eternal torment. You see, they believe that all the wicked dead will be annihilated and therefore exist no more. They teach that all the wicked dead will be annihilated and exist no more. Rather than the biblical teaching that non-believers will be tormented day and night forever and ever, the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that instead they will cease to exist. They'll be annihilated and cease to exist. Look at Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, talking about the tribulation period, verses 9 to 11. Revelation 14, verses 9 to 11, and that reads, And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now if they cease to exist, they'd have rest throughout all eternity. Instead, they have no rest day and night. And it's saying that those who worship the mark of the beast, those who worship the beast by accepting his mark, the non-believers in the tribulation period will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. 
And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, eternal torment. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verses 45 and 46. And that reads, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if eternal life lands, uh, lasts eternally, if eternal life lasts eternally for the righteous, then for the unrighteous, eternal punishment must be a punishment that lasts eternally as well. If eternal life is eternal, then eternal punishment is a punishment that is eternal. Of course, we already looked at the passages of eternal torment in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, and Revelation 20, and verse 10. And there's also a passage in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Christ is talking here, and he says in verses 43 and 44. In fact, let's take a look at 47 and 48. Mark chapter 9, verses 47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so it gives the, Christ gives the illustration of being uh, gnawed at, being covered with worms, and the fire is not quenched, and he's giving a symbolic, refers to the fire as unquenchable fire uh, in verse 43. They'll go into hell into unquenchable fire. And so it's very, very clear that Jesus Christ is talking about eternal torment, eternal punishment, not something that is temporary, not something that is annihilation, uh, a ceasing to exist, not that, but existing in, in a place of torment and discomfort. You see, theologically speaking, death in the Bible means separation, not annihilation. Let me repeat that. Theologically, death in the Bible means separation, not annihilation. Physical death is the separation of the body from the spirit. Spiritual death is when your spirit is separated from God. But death in the Bible equals separation, not annihilation. Human government. The Jehovah's Witnesses have some rare views about human government. Number one, they do not salute the flag. They do not salute the flag. And number two, they refuse to fight any war in defense of our nation. So they do not salute the flag and they refuse to fight any war in defense of our nation. 
Now, when you look at Romans chapter 13, we see that the Apostle Paul gives us the exact opposite advice. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Of course, in Mark 12, 17, Jesus Christ said, Give to, when they asked him, Should we pay our taxes? Jesus Christ very clearly stated, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So you pay your taxes. But Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so this, this passage by the Apostle Paul plus the passage by Christ does not seem to indicate uh, that we should not salute the flag. It doesn't seem to indicate that we should refuse to fight any war in defense of our nation. Rather, it seems to indicate that we should have respect and honor for our country. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we give to God what is God's. That, that also means that we don't give to Caesar what is God's. We don't worship the government, but at the same time, we pay it respect, and we are willing to serve our country and defend our nation if need be. Another point in the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses is they claim that Jehovah is God's only name and that he must be referred to by it. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jehovah is God's only name and that he must be referred to by it. Actually, no one knows how to pronounce the divine name. The divine name is not Jehovah, it's actually Yahweh. Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. But since the Jews never spoke it out of reverence for God, they never pronounced it, we don't know how to pronounce it because YHWH, the Jews did not write their vowels at that time. And so we guess that it's an A and an E and we say Yahweh, but we don't know for sure what it was because the Jews never pronounced it and we have no vowels in their written text. Now that comes from Exodus 3.14, God identified himself as I am who I am from the burning bush when he spoke to Moses, that's Yahweh. We transliterated it into Jehovah, so we often say Jehovah, but it'd be more correct to say Yahweh, that's about as close as we could come. However, when Jesus Christ told us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he told us to call God our Father. Jesus told us to call God our Father. 
I think the important thing is not so much which biblical name we use to call God. The important thing is that it's the biblical God that we direct our prayer to rather than some false God. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jehovah is God's only name, he must be referred to by it. Number one, we don't even know how to pronounce God's name. It's not Jehovah. Yahweh's a lot closer. We don't know how close that is because the Jews never spoke of a reverence for God. The vows aren't included. But Jesus Christ told us to call God our Father in Matthew 6, 9, and that's about as close as we can get. So all this is just a smoke screen that's just wasting uh, breath when people, when the Jehovah's Witnesses argue that we should call God Jehovah and nothing else. Another point in their theology is their failed prophecies. Their failed prophecies. You know, their organization claims to be the prophet of God. Their organization claims to be the prophet of God. What does the Bible say about prophets of God? Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 to 23. Matthew 7 verses 15 to 23. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so then Christ is stating here that as a bad tree is recognized by its bad fruit and a good tree by its good fruit, so we will recognize whether a prophet is a false prophet or a true prophet by the prophecies that come from them. Look at Matthew 24. We have a warning of false prophets in the last days. Matthew 24, verses 23 to 27. Matthew 24, verses 23 to 27. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. 
You see, the Jehovah's Witnesses over and over again predict the invisible return of Christ, and Christ says, my return is not going to be in secret. The Jehovah's Witnesses are false prophets. And finally, to add insult to injury, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, the test of a prophet, whether a prophet is from God or not. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22. And then Moses is speaking and he states this, But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, of which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. The Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted Armageddon for 1914, uh, then a couple other times in the 1920s, and I believe even a, one time in the 1930s. Continuously, they're wrong time and time and time again. They are false prophets. Finally, I'd like to close discussing their Bible, the New World Translation. The Jehovah's Witnesses have no Greek or Hebrew scholars. So with the New World Translation, most likely what they did was they just gathered as many of the other translations together as they could, and they picked the verse, the translation that they liked best of that particular verse, and if they didn't like any of them, they just made up their own. In actuality, the New World Translation is a perversion of God's Word. In John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Greek scholars translate that, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now again, grammatically, you could insert the A, make it a God. However, uh, the context does not call for it. In fact, several times God the Father is referred to as God uh, without the in front of it, yet the Jehovah's Witnesses do not insert a there. If they're going to insert the a for God the Son, they should do it for God the Father as well. And then God the Father would also be a God, a lesser God. But obviously the context demands that we do not insert uh, the Yah in front of God, and therefore we're left with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Period. You don't insert the Yah. In John 8.58, in the New World Translation, uh, it basically uh, says, Before Abraham came into existence, I have been. So they're saying that Jesus was saying, Yes, I, I was in existence before. But egoemi in the Greek is in the present tense. It's in the present tense, which tells us that it must be translated, Before Abraham came into existence, I am. Not before Abraham came into existence, I have been. To correctly translate it, it must read, Before Abraham came into existence, I am. 
which basically means that Jesus Christ is not saying before Abraham came into existence I have been he's not saying that I just pre-existed Abraham but I had a past Jesus Christ is saying I always live in the present I am eternal I am not subject to time so Christ stated before Abraham came into existence I am so that's the Jehovah's Witnesses Jehovah's Witnesses found by Charles Tez Russell who was succeeded by Joseph Franklin Rutherford their headquarters is in Brooklyn New York they've grown to over four million members worldwide they deny the deity of Christ they deny the Trinity they deny the personality of the Holy Spirit they deny Christ's bodily resurrection they deny salvation by grace they deny the effects of the atonement they deny uh, Christ's visible return uh, they deny that the soul exists after the body dies they deny eternal torment and they teach annihilation they deny respect and honor for the human government they teach that Jehovah is God's only name he must be referred to by that alone despite the fact that Jesus told us to call God our father their prophecies have failed and thus they should be uh, looked upon as being false prophets and not the prophet of God as their organization claims to be and their Bible the New World Translation has no Greek or Hebrew scholars behind it instead it is a perversion of God's Word and John 1 1 rings loud and clear properly translated in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was God and since the Jehovah's Witnesses failed to bend the knee refused to bend the knee to Jesus Christ and referred to him as Hakuriasmu Kaihathiasmu the Lord of me and the God of me since they failed to bend the knee to Jesus Christ they will face the eternal torment which they also deny unless they repent and trust in Jesus Christ as their God and Savior thank you